This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. It's a key part of the fascinating history that makes up Yall itself. So it's living. It is living. It is an artefact. It is an icon. It's taking on a new life now. So I'm glad now that townspeople and new people coming into town will know that there was a family lived here. Yes, it's embracing our past. It's using that past and that story to take us into the future. That building is amazing. It has an amazing story to it. I'm sitting here on the windowsill of the upstairs landing in my grandmother's house on Ash Street in the beautiful seaside town of Yall in County Cork. I'm looking out at the iconic Clock Gate Tower. It's just as I remembered when I would come to visit as a child. I remember my dad telling me how he'd meet my mum under the Clock Gate. He told me there was a family who lived in the clock. As a child, that sounded like a fairy tale. It always fascinated me. Come and join me as I find out what it was really like for a family living in a clock tower, along with the history and future of Yall's iconic clock gate tower. My name is Dr. Alicia St. Ledger. I'm a historian working on Yall Clockgate Tower. The Clockgate Tower is an iconic building in Yall. It's, it's one of the most obvious buildings, but the tower stands on the site of Trinity Castle, which was the south gate into the walled town of Yall. In about 1462, the town wall was extended to form a base town or Irish town, um, and that that was, a lot of the native Irish lived there and a new south gate was built. So Trinity Castle was then an internal gate. And those governing the town were very loyal to the crown. They were, they were settlers there. And indeed after the 16th century reformation, um, they were generally Protestant. It, it was a strong, uh, loyal town in that sense. In the 1770s, it was decided to replace that tower and that castle and because it was in poor repair and it was taken down. And in 1777, the present Clockgate Tower was built. It was built for use as a jail and it remained in that use right up until the, about the 1840s. And after it ceased to be used as a prison, it, had a, it seemed to have a number of functions. It was used as a meeting room. I think there was a local society met there for a time. But in a sense, it had lost its main function. So that, it, it was probably around then that you were having people actually maybe living in, in the building itself in order uh, to wind it. And of course, in due course, you had the McGrath family moving in, taking over this role. My name is uh, John McGrath. I was born here in the Clock Gate in Yall in 1939. It's, it's unique in as much as that my grandparents moved in here in 1915 and now we're in the year 2015, which is 100 years. And that's magnificent, you know. And it's great to be still around to be able to talk about uh, my grandparents and my friends and the life we had here, you know. Um, 
Their duties were to wind the clock twice a week to call out the fire brigade. The other one then was the tricolour would have to be flown at um, different times if there was dignitaries coming to town or a VIP died or something like that. Those were the three main duties. The earlier um, building, Trinity Castle, had um, had a clock as well. And before the clock was even put there, as early as 1618, we have a record that a sundial was placed on Trinity Castle. So th these public clocks were very important because most people, in fact, the vast majority of people didn't have any other way of telling the time. So they relied on, on public buildings um, with clocks on them to, to find out what time it was. The living accommodation. If I can describe to you, if you can uh, visualise in your, your mind's eye, we're coming in the front door to the top eight, and there's a hallway in here, and it, uh, it goes all the way past the first window, just as far as here. And here now there is a, a stairs, and the stairs spirals from there, this window, to that window. Up like that, it's made of stone. And um, uh, if, you, if you come in then to your right-hand side, this is the outside kitchen. So at that window there, facing south, uh, there was a sink and there was water. And then we, we go, there was a, uh, a hallway into the living accommodation. And as we're going into the living accommodation, on your right-hand side was the inspection door for the weights of the clock. And if you can see the indentation here in the wall, it's still there. You can actually see, it's just the whole yeah. Describe the weights, what, what was that like? The weights, uh, how would you describe them now? Can you imagine, uh, like a cylinder, a barrel, and it had a wheel on the top of it with a rope around it, you know? And one rope came down, the other one went back up, and we'd wind that up. So it lifted the weight all the way back up to the top. And there were two weights, one for the, the mechanism, and the other one was for the striking of the bell. Hi, um, my name's Philip Stokes. We're with uh, Stokes Clocks on McCartan Street. Um, we specialize in repairing and restoration of antique clocks, public clocks. So that was our tie into y'all clock. Did you ever get to see the original clock? No, um, unfortunately not. Um, my, I think, uh, it's rumoured it was taken out and unfortunately discarded onto the side of the road and it was sitting apparently on the street in Yall for a while and unfortunately someone probably picked it up and took it away for scrap. But um, from descriptions given and things, it was it was it was typical of the period, the type. It was what they call a bed frame movement, which is just sort of very sort of square sort of frame box frame and then the wheels placed in it um but it would have been quite a heavy because they'd have been cast iron and metal and they'd have um been quite quite you know you wouldn't lift them in one piece they would have had to be assembled and disassembled above in the in the tower so uh, they, it's a shame the movement is is gone um 
if someone might have it, we don't know, it might surface someday, but uh, it's a shame because there's a lot of history in that clock. When they removed the clock, they removed all, every part of it, you know. They, they Now, probably the hands are the original, the dials could be the original, and the gearing behind the face is probably the original looking at it. But um, which is nice, what they call the motion work. So some of it is still original, I would feel. But the um, anything from there back, the movement, the weights, and the pendulum, when they took out one bit, unfortunately, they took the whole lot out and 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 discarded it. Um, if someone had that, it, it it's the real history of the, the 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 building and the thing. It's the heart. It was the heart of the building, the old tick of the pendulum and things. So the, it's it's a shame that it's gone. And but. Unfortunately, in those days, it was a case of repair and they didn't really worry about the history of it at the time. It was more a practical thing than a historical thing, where now the wheels have turned and now the historical side is, is as important as the practical side. But the historical side is, a, is, is, is what's driving the project, which is fantastic. Aileen Murray is my name and I'm the manager of the old socio-economic development group. You could really describe it as a task force um, that was set up back in 2007 with the purpose of um, delivering um, various projects. This was about pulling everybody together um, to work locally and then with the agencies to deliver free all. Okay, and that's where the Parkgate project comes in. Okay, back in 2008, and this one now was really, I suppose, dr um, driven by uh, Yall Town Council at the time. So they approached the Heritage Council um, to do a feasibility study on it. So that, that got approval and it was actually KPMG who undertook the feasibility study. So that was the starting point. Um, so to kind of move it forward, um, and to try and get funding, we were best placed as a group to deliver funding to advance the project. So from there, we had, first of all, to undertake a conservation plan on it. And then, I suppose, before any um, visitor attraction could be delivered, those essential conservation and restoration works were, were delivered or were undertaken. We appointed and Scroop. Um, Scroop Design is her company. She's worked on a huge amount of projects. She's worked on Kilmainham Jail, on Guinness, on the Titanic story, on the Queenstown story. And we knew her, uh, the quality of her work. Um, and she's absolutely so thorough. Uh, this is Anne Scroop. I am uh, the founder of Scroop Design. We're an interpretive and exhibition design business here in Ireland. Actually, this is our 20th year. Um, we started with looking at, first of all, the physical building of the tower itself. We look at the whole town of Yol, all the other tourist attractions and key areas in the town. We look at the market, the tourism market, and then we actually look at the history of the old Clockgate Tower. And that was just amazing. I mean, so you bring together a lot of strands before you come up with the plan. So it's not just the creative end of things or the historical end. But the story behind the Clockgate Tower that we discovered in our research was amazing. And it was much, much more interesting and involved than anybody had imagined at the time. I had a sister who was an invalid and she loved living in the clockade. On the, the first story, um, she would um, wave to the people that were doing the shopping and she knew everybody around the area. At that time, the center of the town was a hive of activity. 
um, they would wave up to her and she would wave to them and eventually a few of them would make their way up to have a cup of tea and tell the local gossip or scandal that was going on around the place. So then uh, if you come in here then to the, the living accommodation, um, my sister, as I said, she was an invalid. She always sat at the north window, just here. Anyway, my sister sat there. <clears throat> we had a table right there next to him. Uh, over here, there was, believe it or not, there was a fireplace. And about uh, middle ways here. And um, we'd burn stuff there, uh, do a bit of cooking and things like that. In later years, you know, I got a job in, in, at 14 years of age in Seafood Fabrics. And when I'd come home uh, at four o'clock in the evening, uh, it would be nothing to see three or four people inside in the kitchen and hanging around. There was hardly room to move, you know. But uh, there was always people in and out here. It was a, it was a, it was a nice time of life, really, you know, when, when people were so open and talking to each other. And, of course, religion was a big thing, you know. Uh, if there was a priest coming along the street, like you genuflected more or less, you know. <laughs> but uh, oh, no, it was it was exciting, you know, and it was it was poverty. But when I see where we came from and where we are now, the change in life, my God, this is unbelievable, unbelievable. But um, looking around it now, it doesn't seem to be the same place at all. It's completely changed. Completely changed. We're going up to the second floor, so we get it. Now, the important thing, I think, to realise about the jail in Yall, which was in operation from about 1777 up till about 1840 or so, is that most of the prisoners who were held there were only held there for a short period of time. This was a jail that was run by a Yall corporation. You had those who were taken in because they had committed more serious crimes or needed to go to trial for more serious crimes. And those trials would have been held in Cork. So they would have been held in, in Yall, you know, for a short period, then transferred to Cork for trial. They could also, it could also be used to hold prisoners who were being brought from one prison to another. And then the ones actually that were, that spent the most time in the jail, um, were the debtors, because at that time you could be imprisoned for debt. The conditions in the jail were, of course, pretty grim. And, you know, the, it wouldn't have been at all a pleasant place to, to be incarcerated. The poverty that was in the clock to give you an idea, the top of the clock was flat and when it rained, there wasn't, the gullies weren't uh, capable of taking the water. A lot of it would seep down through the old felt and down through the ceilings from floor to floor. But what I recall was when it would really rain, we would have to shift the beds around, uh, get buckets and pans and contain the water. And uh, we couldn't be traveling up and down the stairs with these pails of water. So we were able to open the window and throw them out there. The second floor, 
So we're going to head up now onto the second floor. And so obviously this is a new stairs then that's put in. Because oh, you say yeah. the spiral one was, this yeah. is all new. You see, I mean, it's very difficult now to describe, you know, when I look at this place now, it's, it's so small. And I thought it was huge when I, when I, when I was a child. But, I mean, the distance between the two windows would be, what, five feet or so, you know? When, can you imagine that there was a stairs built within five feet going up to the second story? And the timber stairs then after the, after the, the, the stone stairs, and there was maybe five steps up one way, then a bit of a landing and five steps up another way, you know? And the reason for it was uh, in order to conserve space. And in each of our bedrooms, the cell doors were still there. And there was a latch in the middle of the door so as that uh, the guard on duty could just open it back and see what the couple of prisoners were doing inside, you know. That's open, open the second floor, is it? Yeah. And, and, and out, even the one we lived here, Every window had the bars outside the window, you know. And I remember one, one stage, you know, uh, it would have been about, I'm guessing now, about 1940, 49 or thereabouts, De came to town. They <clears throat> uh, had to become president of Ireland. And uh, my parents like, uh, oh, Fianna Fáil. But, um, our grocer downtown, Jackie Forrest, was a leading member of the commoner here in Yorn. And De Valera, uh, when he arrived in Yorn, on the very north end of the town, out near the, the cemetery, there was a, a carriage with two white horses waiting for him. So they put him into the white horse, or to the, white, to the carriage, and uh, brought him through the town. And of course, the streets were lined with people waving to De Valera. And when he came to here, all windows were opened, and Jack Forrest was sitting in the carriage with De Valera, and he stopped. And of course, De Valera waved up to my mother and father and the family, and uh, I'd say it was better than a Pope's blessing. <laughs> the type of prisoner in the jail in Yall changed in the period of the 1798 United Irishman Rebellion. Not surprisingly, you know, this was a time of an awful lot of fear and concern amongst the townspeople of Yall and indeed in, in Ireland in general. And during this time, there were prisoners uh, brought in to the clock gate. And indeed, that was the one time that we know that there were at least three men who were hanged at the jail during this time. And they were convicted of offences linked to the rebellion. Greetings, one and all, and welcome to our ancient walled port town of Yall. Oh, yay! Oh, yay! Oh, oh, yay. Those who are coming with me, no, the clock gate there was built in 1777. It was built originally as a jail and a gallows. The way they would hang you in any other jail, so I don't see why it was any different in Yall was the chief jailer would be the executioner. And it depended on how you or your family got on with the jailer. 
right? Whether you got on well with him or whether you didn't, whether you tipped him well or whether you didn't. I've just told you it was entertainment. As I say, it, it wasn't barbaric, it was the custom of the time. Nowadays we'd say it was barbaric. It wasn't at the time, it was part of, part of life. And you mentioned there about how it was part of the, of the prisons. Were you very conscious of those kind of stories going up? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We we were always conscious about. Um, but um, Father O'Neill now is supposed to be flogged and a statue of him down in, in the the Green Park. But for some unknown reason, I suppose we were. We were all into the cinemas, you know, and we knew that the cinemas were all kind of make-believe. So we put this thing in the back of our mind as to what happened in, in Clock it was only hearsay. So for a lot of the time, I suppose because we wanted to do that, to say, like, uh, uh, this didn't actually happen. Because if you thought, like, that it was fact, then I would say nobody would have lived in here. Here we are at the famous clock gate. Um, the two leaders of the United Irishmen were hanged from ropes down the other side of the clock gate. And um, I'm afraid there was quite a lot of torture that went on. Just tell you one story, the story of Father O'Neill. Father O'Neill was um, the parish priest of Ballymacoda. And one of the citizens in Ballymacoda had killed another. And it was thought because the fella he was killed and was giving information to the English troops. So they brought in Father O'Neill to generally explain the situation in the village, and he refused to talk. So according to the book, he was given 245 lashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they put him in the clock gate, and he was sent off with all the other prisoners, which is what they did with all these people in the in 1798 mm -hmm. uprising. They sent them off to Australia, yeah, yeah. a convict ship. And he was sent off to Tasmania. He arrived in Tasmania. He was there a year as a prisoner. He managed to survive. How he survived oh. that voyage, I do not know. But anyway, he did. And he was a prisoner there for um, a year. And then he was pardoned, I suppose, because he was a churchman, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so he came home again. I think it took him about two years to get home. <laughs> and then he um, became the parish priest of Ballybacoda again and lived happily. That was a time when the type of prisoner changed. Once things calmed down again after the 1798 rebellion, uh, then it went back to being very much a jail that was used for, for regular prisoners. As part of the new way of looking at why we have prisons and, and how those who were convicted of wrongdoing should be dealt with. You had the late 18th century philosopher, Jersey Bentham. Now, when these new ideas were coming in, I suppose by about the sort of 1820s or so, uh, Yall was coming under pressure to adapt to these changes. The inspector generals of prisons were set up. So from the 1820s, you're getting these they're fairly brief, but they're interesting descriptions of the prisons. And to be honest, they're, they're actually very critical of what was happening in York on a number of levels. And one of the issues that they had was the fact that the prisoners could interact with people in the street because you only had bars on the window. And there, there was even references to where prisoners would maybe let down a basket or something and uh, people could put something into them. I mean, they, they could interact with 
the people around them. And this went completely against the idea of what a prison should be. We're standing here up on the second floor. This was, these were the bedrooms. This these is where you, you were born on this floor. Yeah, you? that's right. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, and at that time there wasn't a maternity hospital, you know. So the doctor and the, the midwife would come to give the assistance. Maybe that's what happened to my sister when she was born. I don't know. Uh, somebody said like that the doctor actually revived her in her birth. But um, we had a two small beds and my, my brother and myself slept here. And uh, I would say that what I remember most, you know, there was a door into the, the bedroom. And when, when a car would come up the street, it would shine and take the, the small panes of glass and would ride up onto the... and it would move along the ceiling, you know. Uh, it was an eerie time because... Uh, there would be clothes, maybe coats and things hanging on the back of the, the door, you know. And you would just say, did that move? Am I sure it didn't move, you know? <laughs> so you were always suspicious like that, that, uh, that the place was, you know, a, a prison and uh, that there were actually people hung from this place. And um, the doors to all the bedrooms had the spikes at the top of it. They would have been maybe, like fingers, uh, maybe three or four inches for ventilation, I would say. And, uh, yeah, there were inspectors' reports on prisons back in the 1800s. From those reports, we get an idea how bad the conditions were. I have found the jail at Yall in the same inefficient and ill-kept state which I reported on my last tour. The evil effects of want and accommodation and care were not so conspicuous as the prison was almost empty, but much blame attaches to the keeper. I have conversed with the magistrates at Yall and with Colonel Curry on the part of His Grace the Duke of Devonshire and have every reason to expect that immediate measures will be taken to erect. So there were these there was this constant criticism of Yall and the difficulty for the Yall authorities was that they were quite happy to have a new jail to be built. So the corporation was, you know, perfectly anxious to, to, to fill in with the, this new requirement to improve the conditions of their jail. And indeed, the architect George Payne in Cork was asked to draw up a new design, which he did in the 1830s. But the problem was then, as now, was that there was no funding. and. There's interesting information in the archives where you've got all these letters going backwards and forwards. And I think the nub of the issue was that because this was a corporation jail, it wasn't exactly the same as a county jail or a city jail. And in a sense, it, and I think Kinsale was the other one, um, they, they sort of didn't match them. They, they didn't qualify for funding that was available. And so it took quite a long time, indeed, until the 1840s before a new prison was built. And then the Clockgate Tower um, finally no longer had prisoners in it. Talk to us a little bit about Moby Dick. Oh, Moby Dick, yeah. I had a unique position in as much as that when they were making the film, I could go to the top of the clock gate and we, we'd be able to, to see a, a lot of the film being made. Um, it was quite, oh yes, my, my, my mother then got a job in the catering section where she was uh, 
doing a bit of cooking and doing a bit of washing up and a bit of serving tables and sandwiches and what have you. And because my sister, whom I told you was an invalid, could not go and see a lot of the stuff that was being done down there, my mother uh, got a, an autograph book and uh, the gentleman that participated in the, um, in the film, um, they all signed it, you know. It is a nice momentum, I still have it, you know. I remember one time I took ill and um, there was a doctor came to visit me in bed. I would have been maybe 14, 15 years of age. And uh, he actually saw my sister and uh, took an interest and uh, suggested that, um, that she be brought to the orthopedic hospital in Cork and that maybe they could do something about um, helping that she might be able to walk. So she went through quite, quite a few operations and uh, at one stage uh, it didn't work out and she had to have her toes amputated because the plaster pals, I don't know exactly what happened. Can you, can you imagine, Eileen, that when we lived here, we never heard that? It, we just kind of switched off. You never heard that. Only that in, in the, at, at night time, at maybe 12 o'clock at night, when I would be coming home from the cinema, um, when I'd stand in the hall there, I could hear the pendulum tick, tick. But unfortunately, now the pendulum is not there anymore. And it's, it's lovely to hear it. It's absolutely beautiful to hear it. There was a bell in Trinity Castle, and we know that for sure because when the castle was being taken down, they said that the bell and the clock were to be, were to be saved to go into the new uh, clock gate tower. Interestingly, though, the bell obviously wasn't the right size because um, not long after the new clock gate was built, they sent away and got a new bell, which is the bell that's there now, um, which is 1783. So, but we know that, that there was um, a bell there before that, because there's references to it, there's, there's references to, to, to it being rung. The Catholic supporters of King James were in power in Yall for a short time, and there was laws passed which led to the arrest of many Protestants in Yall. And there were some locals who basically wanted to kill them. They wanted to, to sort of burn them alive. And, but the Catholic mayor of Yall at the time, Nicholas Ronane, he appealed to the people um, not to commit murder. And he, he basically rescued the Protestants. And within a year, um, James was gone. William and, and the Protestants were in, in power and things had changed. The corporation members, you know, at the, at, in, in the new regime, obviously, were, were, were Protestant. And when they reconvened, they ordered that the bell be tolled on the death of Nicholas Ronane and on the death of his descendants, because they were very grateful to him, obviously, for what he had done. And interestingly, this tradition comes right up nearly to the present, because it was carried on until February 1961, when the bell on the clock tower was last rung on the death of Miss G. Ronane of Ardsala. So, you know, there, there is that link, that tradition was carried on up until 1961. So the, the bell is, is a very um, important part of what was going on in the clock gate.
This now is uh, the, 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 the third floor we're talking about, the American room. As we called it, the trunk room. And across from the trunk room then was the room that we kept fuel, sawdust and timber for keeping the home fires burning during the winter time. My sister was, had to be put into a makeshift um, pram. But my aunt in America sent a wheelchair over and it came through the railway. I remember it well. It was in an, a, a timber case and uh, the railway uh, at that time uh, would deliver goods by their horse and cart. And we brought it up to the clock gate and I think it might have been one of the first wheelchairs in Yorn. Everybody uh, looked at it and admired it and thought it was something special. Um, I remember then one year uh, she sent over three pairs of uh, roller skates. We were the only people they'd send in Ireland with roller skates, you know. <laughs> Even though we didn't have a lot to eat, we had, <laughs> we, we had all these things. Uh, and that, that room was, was more or less... Uh, I suppose uh, stuff that we would we wouldn't use then during the winter time would be would be stored there in the in the summertime. And across the the, the floor from that then was a room uh, we used to call it the sawdust room, and and that was more or less uh, what these two rooms were used for. Um, the next floor was where where we, my mother used to dry the clothes. We had it up. clock has always ticked. It's always ticking. It's always telling the time. And, you know, whether it was the period when, we'll say, your carpets was there and there was a lot of employment, and then that um, ceased. But the clock keeps ticking. It's there the whole time. And people keep looking at it. And the eyes that look at it now are, are inheritors, as it were, of the eyes who looked at it, you know, we'll say, when uh, even the, the one on the previous building, when it was being used as a as a storehouse, you know, um, merchants or you know housewives or children, looking at it then, and looking at it now, in a sense, they're all they're all doing the same sort of thing. So it's certainly a, a very iconic building in the town. It really is unique and. It, it is something that nobody can copy. Nobody can take it from Yol. The story is about Yol people. It's about the place, the town. Um, it's also a very contemporary story of how the Yol people regard the clock guitar today, how iconic was it is. Was there any particular story, you know, as, as the research was being done? Was there anyone that stood out for you? Um, the... All the stories stood out for me. This is what was amazing. We started with looking at local history where it was a little bit makey-uppy, a little bit. Okay, it sounded very dramatic, such as, you know, witches being burned and people being flogged and you could hear the cries of the ghosts from the clock gate towers you passed along at night, things like that. Now... It's most important in our work that everything we do is verified. It's authentic. We, we, this is about real histories. It's not about somebody else's imagination. So 
When we got into the corporation archives, we realised that going back to the 1400s and earlier, the corporation of Yol retained all the details of the town. And we found handwritten notes and records from the jailers, for example, that worked in the clock guitar, how much they were paid. They claimed money for stockings. They claimed money for moving a prisoner from Yol into Cork jail. We realised that the prisoners weren't dramatic. They were mostly debtors, petty thieves. But I think overall, when you ask me what is the most interesting story, it's the fact that the record is there. It's about people who lived in the town. Like I, I can talk about them as if I knew them. You know, Cornelius Slorgan was the watch guard who went out from the tower. Um, Henry Couch was the last jailer. Robert Gall was the first jailer. Mary Pine was a prisoner in there. Um, then there was a, another guy who he put his sister in there because she wouldn't marry somebody. This was documented and she was only being taken out of prison if she agreed to marry some guy. And it's all about real people. And the archives have given that, that somebody had the foresight to store that information. And here we are nearly 300 years later, going back in and picking that information up. And it all belongs to the clock guitar. So that, that is, what to me, what's amazing. And you don't get that in lots of other places. Oh, no, to go. So we're coming up here, so this is up onto the fourth floor. Tell me about this floor. Well, now, this floor, uh, this floor here, uh, my father improvised, and we didn't have any yard to dry clothes or anything like that. So my father uh, would would uh, run a string or a line from one wall to the other, or maybe three or four lines, and then he would take out the windows, so that the the wind would blow in and out, and that would dry the clothes. It didn't matter whether it rained or not because it wasn't going to get out the clothes anyway. But the thing the thing about this room now, it was smaller than the others. Uh, but right on through the centre here was where the pendulum came. And the pendulum for the clock would swing maybe three feet that way and three feet that way. And it was encased in a, in a timber case. Unfortunately, the one that there now has no pendulum, but in the old days, I think, believe the pendulum came down to the lower floor, it was quite a long pendulum, so it would have had a lovely, loud, slow tick. Every two seconds, it would have been a lovely tick and nice thud. Therefore, what we have done is, it's now electronically controlled, so it's, it, we, it's eliminated the weights and the pendulum, so, but it's all through the mechanics, then after that, it drives through all the old mechanism and into the, the bell hammer, the original. So the it has been, it's been changed, but it's been changed uh, as little as possible to make it as, as practical as possible to maintain and look after and keep time. Uh, it's, it's had changes, but as uh, trying to preserve what's there at the same time. Now, there was another story I was told, and again, whether it's fact or fiction, I don't know. But when we moved out of here in 1959, the builders came in 
And they were told by the architects, you know, this is what we want to do with the clock eight. So they brought uh, a spiral staircase from the first floor all the way up to the story here. But nobody took any pictures or measurements of what the building was like before that. So they came out of the sledgehammers and they just hacked everything down and they put this modern staircase in there, you know. And again, it's only hearsay, but they tried to make a bit of a museum out of it. And they put yawlies and a few paintings and different artefacts like that. And I suppose they weren't very familiar with the how to care for a museum or looked after that type of thing. But they closed it up and come September and then the following spring, maybe May or June, they opened it up again and they didn't realise that the dampness had actually come through all the walls and the stuff started to deteriorate because they had no uh, dehumidifiers or anything like that to to extract the water from it and nobody came in to see what was happening here. And that was a bit of a misfortune as well. And, and I suppose the reason, Eileen, is that in, in 1960, we wanted to modernise everything. Now, 2015, we want to bring back things as they were in the 1800s, you know. So we... The, the job of designing is about 1% is creative and the other 99% is sheer hard work and research. And we found this was worth it. The 99% hard work threw up amazing material. So it made our job easier to be creative. Um, and that's now the plan. That's the design. So the ground four floors, four stories, spread across all those years what was on the site before the jail was built, then the story of the jail itself, then very importantly the story of clock and time and the bell because that was always associated with the site and the importance of those two elements to all the people in Yule and there's some amazing stories there and then the fact that there was people employed to look after the clock and the bell, and that led to the story of the McGrath family moving in and living there right up until the 1950s. And it's 100 years ago this year that the McGrath family moved in to the clock gate tower. So there's a nice tying together of past and present. And, and of course, that there's a future. It now takes on a whole new life. Well, I'm delighted to say that we have finally secured funding which will allow us to actually open the gates or open the doors to the clock gate as a visitor attraction. The funding is part um, of a special tranche of funding from Forja Ireland. It's under this new Ireland's Ancient East scheme. Uh, so it's all about the um, 5,000 years of history and culture and we fit in really nicely into this. So when this scheme was announced, we said, yeah, this is us. Um, so we have secured 200,000 euros. So it's um, new spaces in ancient places is actually the scheme. 
we have to be open by next season. And when we talk about next season, we're saying May 2016. It's one of the conditions of the funding. We really believe that this is the key to unlocking y'all's economic regeneration. Tourism is y'all's future. For years, people have said, why can't we go into the Clockgate Tower? What would we see from those windows up above? What would we feel when we go in there? And please God, next year, they'll be able to go in and experience that and look out the windows and get a sense of how amazing the building really is, not just to look at, but its history and the people attached to it. My sister, like I said, then spent most of her time here and uh, part of all our duties were to help to bring her up the stairs and down the stairs. And, um, and I really, she, she really enjoyed the cocky. Oh, she loved it. That was her winter. Oh, that was, yeah, this is her life here, you know. And in, in later years, you know, um, she was highly intelligent. Uh, she, she had very little schooling, but um, she graduated to a, a typewriter and she was to put a pencil in her mouth and type and actually correspond with people. It would take a long time to do it, but... Uh, uh, I suppose because she was so intelligent, she wasn't easy to get on with. <laughs> well, my mother and herself, like, uh, they were so united, you know, that, that uh, we were only secondary, you know. She was the important person. I suppose I ran away from home, I suppose, about 16 and a half years of age, and I went to Scotland. Um, there was an aunt of mine in Scotland. I worked in the British Railways for one year. There was a bit of a difficulty there we won't go into. So I um, I had to pack my suitcase and come back to Yorn. And when I stood in, in the clock eight, and I looked around at the conditions, and I said, my God, we're really, really in poverty here. So I, I, I said to my mother, it, you can't just continue here, taking my sister up and down two flights of stairs in all kinds of weather. And as you know, the elements were great all the time. So she was in agreement, but my sister was reluctant. And uh, she didn't like the idea. But I took it upon myself to go to the powers that be, the town hall, and I asked them if they could do something about her conditions. and. They didn't have money at that time. I'm talking about 1959, 50, 50, 58. And um, they said that they, they, they couldn't do up the clock that to cost an enormous amount of money, but that they would provide a council house for us. And they did down on Catherine Street, across the road from the glue party anchor bar. And um, I don't think she was ever entirely happy there. I think what is interesting, though, is to think of all of the people who occupied that building for any period of time and, and looked out what, what they were seeing and what they were thinking over the years. And they were seeing essentially the same view. They're seeing the street go under it because it's right over the street. So it's, it's really part of this flow of, of people and trade. And in a sense, I suppose, a flow of history as well, all around them. You know, that this is all going on. 
and yet there the, the clock gate stands in the middle of it. Uh, when, when she left the clock gate then she must have been in terrible pain. I think between the loss of the clock gate and her life was crumbling around her, you know. And there was there was no help there at that time, you know. She had uh, she had a um, she was very uh, um, um, how would I put it? Oh, keeping herself clean, and uh, she always insisted that she'd go in a bath, you know. And uh, in in Catherine Street, we had a bath, and uh, she, my mother had died, and she was living on her own. And uh, I was out in Cop Rally at a G hurling match one morning, Sunday morning, and the police came for me to say that come into Catherine Street, so I went in anyhow, and my sister was after drowning in the bath. But that, that was a sad, sad part of our life, you know. When you stepped into the Clockgate Tower, when the McGrath family were there, you stepped into a very unusual experience. You were in the middle of the town, above an arch, living with, a, having a cup of tea with a family where one of the daughters of the family is in a wheelchair, is stepping into a building that did not have electricity in 1930s and 1940s. But you could also lean out the window and talk to people passing on the street. You could hear the sounds of the, the, the town. Um, so it's an incredible experience to even be there. Today you're going to step into the building and you'll have a different experience and hopefully it'll be memorable. So it's living. It is living. It is an artifact. It is an icon. It's taking on a new life now with this exhibition. And maybe in 50 or 6 years time, it might be something else. Uh, if we can go up now to the, to the, the dome itself, Just looking here at the timbers, these are obviously all original. Oh, they are, yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're all, yeah, as a matter of fact, if you look around, there's a bit of uh, wood on them here and there. And lots of people, when they came here, not so much out here, but on the, the stairs going down long ago, the army fellas especially, they all draw their, their names or uh, maybe do a drawing of a, a head or a, a devil or something like that, you know. But, uh, so I'm just looking at a name here as well. Is that a name? Slovakia. Oh, yeah. So it just goes, I mean, the times, talk about having times changed then. Yeah. Etched in. Yeah, look at that. That's, that's probably quite recent, isn't it? Mm -hmm. 2013. Yeah. Once seen as a symbol of terror and tyranny, what do you believe now it will be seen as? I really think it's going to be seen as a sign of hope for the future and a symbol of y'all's future. It's looking forward and it's, yes, it's embracing our past and it's using that past and that story to take us into the future. And if we can go out there, I mean. Oh, wow, look at that. There you go. Oh, this is great. Isn't it? Oh, this is great. Where you're standing now, Eileen, there was a type of a hut here, and this was the, the way out to the, the parapet. And um, there was a flagpole then, I think it was over on that side where 
Um, like I said, the tricolour had to be flown for different occasions. What happened uh, you know, during the Civil War, uh, the IRA and the Free State Army were at loggerheads with each other. Um, and I suppose the IRA wanted to saw how powerful they were. And they made their way in here during the night. I don't know whether my grandparents left the door open deliberately or not. But anyway, they put a flag up on here and they hoisted the IRA flag. And then about two days later or three days later, the Free State Army came along and they took it down. But uh, that was, uh, it must have been, uh, I suppose they thought the Civil War was going to break out again. And as we're looking down here to the Market Square, this is where I had uh, the view of the making of Moby Dick. A perfect view. Perfect view. Were you ever up here before, Eileen? No, I wasn't. Wouldn't you? Yeah. It's fascinating. It really is amazing to have had this. I'm and looking to see myself. Is that for that? I mean, my dad's house or my granny's house. That's right. And Ash Street, the grey one there, is it? Yeah, come over this way again. Yeah. There it is. That's the bedroom window. Where I have my first fascination with the clock gate. You'd always look out there and the sound of the seagulls. The sound of seagulls, My grandmother's house is now empty and silent. As generations come and go and time ticks on, our opinions and attitudes alter. In 1910, James Horgan, cinematographer from Yawl and Ireland's first animator, once depicted the clock gate coming to life, sprouting little arms, spinning and dancing through the main street and running off out towards the bay. Read into that as you wish. Today, however, this phoenix is rising from the ashes, no longer a symbol of terror and tyranny, but an iconic landmark and a beacon of hope. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. A Family Moments, Family Memories production. Produced and presented by Eileen McCarthy-Thompson, edited by Warren Tidy.